Well, of all the things that are certain in life, um, it's been said death and taxes, right? Death and taxes, these are the things that you can count on in life. I, I want to agree with the, the death. That one is, is yet to be defeated in, in the sense of everybody that lives physically dies. Death is certain. That's one of the things Jesus is going to address in our passage. The taxes piece is debatable. I mean, there's places like Alberta or Florida, you know, where there's a little bit less than, than what we experience here. Um, in, in some places in the world, some humans have managed to escape taxes, believe it or not. But the one thing that I believe is certain, along with death, and comes to its ultimate fulfillment at death, is division. See, we, we see division everywhere we look now, right? <laughs> There's division, I mean, masks, no masks, Trudeau or truckers. Are you conservative politically, liberal politically, conservative theologically, liberal theologically? Are you on this side or that side? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Are you wealthy? Are you poor? Are, are, are you, are you pro-social justice, anti-social justice? Any number of issues, any number of things you want to talk about, I can guarantee you we can find someone who will disagree with you. There is all kinds of division. And sometimes we act like that's surprising or temporary. But the picture Jesus gives us in Matthew 25 is that there is one ultimate, certain division that remains. This one ultimate division that will swallow up in significance every other division that has ever existed. One division in one moment of time. We, we have a problem because a lot of times when we picture the final moment, when we stand before the judgment throne of God, when we stand before the Creator and have to give an account, when our eternity, when our future is determined, we sometimes envision this moment like as if we'll have a choice in that moment. Like that will be the great decisive moment where we have to choose one way or the other. When in reality, that final moment... When our eyes are open to see the greatness of King Jesus and when we stand before his judgment throne, all the decisions that matter will have already been made. What we will find is that this life is like driving down a highway and there are all kinds of exit ramps, all kinds of opportunities for U-turns. But in that one final moment, the last exit ramp is passed and the path that you are on, either to death or to life, to heaven or to hell, eternity with God or eternal punishment, you will be on that road fixed and certain forever. When Jesus separates in the one division that matters, what we will find is that he is giving his divine amen to the decisions that you have made in this life for Christ or against. In a world where man, we are more convinced, we are feeling this reality more than ever, it feels like nothing is certain 
My friends, understand this is certain. Jesus will divide for eternity. My soul, my only goal this morning is to help you make decisions today that will prepare you for that one certain division to come. I want to talk about that first by addressing this one definitive moment. There's a division that's going to matter, and it's going to come in this. It's going to be revealed in this one definitive moment that Jesus describes for us in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. Here's how Jesus describes it. These words come from his mouth. He says, when the Son of Man comes. Listen, when the Son of Man comes. It's not an accident. That's not a mistake word. Not if the Son of Man comes. When. This is a certain reality that Jesus Christ himself will come. And what will it look like when the Son of Man comes? He will come in his Glory. Notice this. It is his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Do not miss the details that Jesus is highlighting for us. In this passage here, as he's describing his return, he's picking up on all kinds of Old Testament imagery. We we understand that God is great, that God is glorious. That God is the one who redeems and that God is the one who judges. We understand that God alone, Yahweh himself, is the one who appears in great glory. The Shekinah glory is Yahweh's. But here, it does not say that Jesus will come in Yahweh's glory. It says he will come in his own glory. Because the glory is one and the same. Do not miss this. Whose throne is it? Oh, it's God's throne. Whose throne is it? It's the throne of the Son of Man. The throne, the only throne that matters. The glorious throne, he will reign over all things. The glorious throne, not just of reigning, but of judging. The one who brings judgment on all humanity is none other than Jesus himself. Whose are the angels? Guys, you've read the Old Testament, right? You know the language. Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. To whom do the angels belong? They belong to Jesus. And they come with him and for him. This certain definitive moment describes what will happen when the heavens are opened and we see Jesus in his glory with his angels on his throne. This is our certain reality and it affects everyone. Verse 32, Jesus says, Before him... As before Jesus will be gathered all the nations. All the nations. Every corner of this earth that he has created, every single one of us from every part of the earth will stand before Jesus and have to give an account before his glorious throne. But listen to what he does. When all of us appear before him, he will separate people one from another. Here's the division. In this definitive moment, what will it be? He'll separate as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This, this would be a common enough image for them. Sheep and goats would often be allowed to flock together, graze together, but in the cold, goats couldn't handle it. They would have to huddle together for warmth. 
Um, I don't like that because I'm cold all the time, so that kind of makes me like a goat, and I don't want to be a goat here. Uh, so, so the goats would have to huddle together for warmth, so the shepherds would have to separate them and, and pull them together so that they could stay warm. The sheep would be fine on their own. So this separating of sheep and goats is a common enough image, but Jesus loads it full with significance of what happens on that day. There will be a separation, and he will place, verse 33, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 46, he describes what this means. These will go away on his left, the goats. These will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the sheep on his right, they go into eternal life. Existence no longer in merely this earthly realm, but existence before the very face of God, who himself exists outside of eternity, describing something so great, so transcendent that our words and our categories can barely even stretch to grasp conceptually what will eternity be, but it will be life or it will be death with God or without him. All eternity hangs in the balance. There is one definitive moment when this will all be made clear Can I ask you, please don't make yourself stupider. I'm using this language on purpose. I'm referring here to an image that I have in my mind. For those of you who are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this remarkable story when Aslan and the magician's nephew is singing Narnia, this new world, into existence. It's a parallel of the creation account of this world. And the lion, Aslan, is singing. And there's someone there who is, who is hostile, who does not like what this lion sounds like. And so he, in his heart, refuses to believe that the lion is singing. And so he hardens his heart and makes himself believe that the voice of the lion is not really singing a song. It's not beautiful. It's ugly. He hardens himself to believe the lion's just growling. He's just roaring. He's just making lion noises. And Lewis comments on this. He says this. He says, the problem with trying to make yourself stupider is that you very often succeed. Do not deny what is certain and obvious. You know you were created. And you know that you were created for something greater than this life or anything in this world. You know that, but you've been denying that. Why? Why would you deny that? Because you know that if there is a God who has created us and he's made things that are beautiful and good and just and orderly and we can see them, then he must be beautiful and just and good. And if he is beautiful and just and good and knows all things and can see my heart, and one day I'm going to have to stand before a stone and I'll be exposed and I'll be judged. And I hate that reality. So I'm going to pretend like the lion's just making noises. I'm going to come up with all kinds of excuses about why the world is the way it is and I'm going to pretend like there's evidence that trumps the reality that I know I'm created. All because I'm trying to avoid the one thing that's actually certain, which is you will stand before God. You cannot escape. In the end, there will only be life or death, heaven or hell, blessing or curse, joy or anguish. Guys, the, the, the picture, maybe you could picture it something like this. When, when Jesus comes, it's like a, like, like, like a magnet. You know a magnet can, can, can draw the right types of things to it, but if you try to push it against something else, it will repel. 
And it's because of the nature, it's because of the composition of those things. Jesus in his glory, Jesus in his justice, Jesus in his righteousness comes and by virtue of his very nature repels the unrighteousness, but, but the unrighteous, but draws into life those whose hearts are united with his. It, it, it's like oil and water, substances that no matter how much you try to put them together, they, they separate. This is because he is glorious and great and good and you are not. But Jesus, in telling us this, in reminding us of what is certain, he is helping us. He is like a teacher saying to the students, here is going to be a test. It is certain there is an exam coming, so get ready for the exam. No student has an excuse if they don't get ready when they've been told that the exam is coming. And also, by the way, how to pass. I'm not asking you to do anything crazy here. You do this already, right? You plan for things that you think are coming. You prepare for them. I'm preparing because one day I want to get married. I'm preparing because one day I want to have the the type of job or career that I'm striving for. I'm preparing because I want to have children because I want to retire. You prepare for all kinds of things, but none of them are certain. This one definitive moment is certain. Are you prepared for it? Well, that depends. I mean, what what separates the sheep from the goats? What separates the right from the left? Jesus teaches us here there is one distinguishing mark between the two. One distinguishing mark that will separate the sheep and the goats. Verse 34, he describes it this way. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The promise is, you who have a relationship with the Father now receive an inheritance from the Father, and it's the kingdom that he's prepared for you. And he explains why. Why these ones? He says this in verse 35. For, for, here's why. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He he contrasts this, what he says to those on his right, with what he says to those on his left. Look at verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me. So instead of come to me, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verses 42 and 43, he goes on to describe the opposite. Here's what you didn't do that the righteous did do. Now there needs to be some kind of explanation offered because everyone is surprised at what Jesus says. They're not, they're not surprised at the verdict. They're not surprised like, oh, I'm going to heaven or I'm going to hell. They're surprised at what Jesus is describing. Why? Why? Like, when, when did these things happen that you're describing? When did we do that? Verse 37, Jesus explains, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, listen how he describes them, my brothers. My brothers and sisters is a family term. Jesus' family, the least that you've, what you've done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. 
See, at the end of the day, the, the evidence that's, that's being given here is evidence that has to do with how you've responded to the king. But how you've responded to the king is actually revealed in how you've responded to, how you've interacted with those with whom the king identifies. Those whom he calls his brothers and sisters. They interacted when they interacted with the people with whom he identifies, these brothers and sisters, the least of these, these Christians, these kingdom citizens, as you have done for them, you have done for me. Don Carson explains this helpfully in his commentary on Matthew. Commenting on this passage, he says this, the fate of the nations will be determined by how they respond to Jesus' followers who whether they're missionaries or not, are charged with spreading the gospel. That's a great commission, right? So all Christians are going out to spread the gospel and some will suffer for it. So he says all are charged with spreading the gospel and do so in the face of hunger, thirst, illness, imprisonment. Good deeds done to Jesus' followers, even the least of them, are not only works of compassion and morality, not only that, but they reflect where people stand in relation to the kingdom. And to Jesus himself. Jesus identifies himself with the fate of his followers and makes compassion for them, for Christians, for compassion for them equivalent to compassion for himself. Who do you throw your lot in with? Who do you identify with? Who are you for? Who do you love? Who do you show grace and mercy and compassion to? For whose good do you work? If it's for Christians, then it's for Jesus. This is, this is not uncommon for Jesus to speak this way. I want to I show you the flip side of this. So Jesus is highlighting here the, the positive side. If you love my people, you're loving me. In Acts chapter 9, in the conversion of who would become the apostle Paul, at this point Saul, who was traveling around and persecuting the churches. He's put Stephen to death. He's put other people in prison. He's traveling to Damascus so that he can go persecute other Christians. And then he is stopped dead in his tracks, a blinding light from heaven, and the voice of heaven stopping him, arresting him in that very place, and he responds in Acts chapter 9, he falls to the ground in verse 4, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Oh, that's not what it says. Why are you persecuting Christians? Nope. What does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? And he said in verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul wants to know, who am I persecuting? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. If you persecute the, G the, the church, you're persecuting Jesus. If you are loving Christians, you are loving Jesus. Showing compassion to Christians is showing compassion to Jesus. How you treat his people is how you treat him. How you interact with those in the kingdom says everything about how you interact with the king. The evidence that's being given here, it's, it, Jesus is citing it, it's, it's evidential of your heart. It's not causative for your salvation. 
The, the people didn't do this. They're surprised, right? They didn't do this in order to be saved. They did this because it was what was in their heart, because their hearts were right with the king, and the king loves his people, so of course I'm compassionate to his people. This is the same thing the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3. This is what John writes. He says this, 1 John 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because how would you finish that sentence? A lot of us with theological minds, we've got all kinds of things we want to say about justification by faith and being made right with Christ apart from our works and all these kinds of things, all of which are stellar answers. They're great answers. But listen to how the Apostle John answers that. Here's how you can know you're a Christian. Here's how you know your destiny's heaven. Here's how you know you're on the path to, to, to life and not to death. Here's what he says. We've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the sisters, because of our love for Christians, this is how we know we have passed from death to life. John says, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If the criteria for whether or not you are spending eternity in the presence of God in unending joy or away from God in eternal punishment, if the criteria was simply to look at your life and say, how have you interacted with other believers? How do you fare in that test? See, on the one hand, Jesus' standard here is, is really freeing, Right? Because sometimes we, we can read this text and think that what Jesus is calling us to do is actually to show compassion and, and, and works of mercy to every single person in the world. Like as if somehow, somehow we have to solve all of the world's problems. And that's, that's, that's not on us. He, he knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. But he does call us to something very specific. He calls us to love his people. So it moves very quickly from freeing to convicting. Because we have to ask the question, are you actually loving other Christians? Like, one of the things that's been profoundly discouraging to me over the past two years has been watching the way people who profess to be believers interact with one another online. The, the, the way people have left churches and gone to other churches because they agree with me about all kinds of peripheral issues. We insist on everything my way in the moment rather than engaging with the people who Jesus says, that's me, in the way that we would want to interact with our king himself. Of course there are people with whom we disagree. And truth matters. We want to speak truth. But friends, if we're not showing compassion to people with whom we disagree, you know what we're doing? We're saying my relationship with that person must be distant. I must distance myself, not show compassion, not show mercy, not show love to that person. Why? Because they disagree with me. And you know what you've done? You've inserted yourself as a reference point into the center of that relationship. When in reality, Jesus is the center point of that relationship. And how you interact with that person has everything to do with the king who says, that one's mine. Not about your view on politics or masks. 
Let me ask you the question. Do you even know who you're supposed to be loving? Uh, so someone, asked, someone asked the question, you know, what is the, the membership covenant of GSC? What's that all about? And I sometimes will describe it this way. The membership covenant is, is simply saying, we're looking at the commands of the New Testament to love one another, and we're looking at one another and saying, okay, let's do this together. One of the fundamental purposes of membership is to be able to say, I'm committing to do this with you. There's, there's a demonstrable visible display of walking in obedience is showing works of compassion and mercy and love and kindness and sweetness of speech with one another. Do you belong to a church? Have you joined a church? Do you know who you're supposed to be loving? And do you know them well enough to serve them? What what Jesus is describing here is you're coming alongside and ministering to them in their need. Here's the reality. The people around you, whether you see it or not, are weak and suffering and in need of compassion. They're in need of works of mercy. But you don't know it until you get near to them. Are you practicing hospitality, having people in your home? Or are you engaging in a small group? Are you coming to a discipleship class? Are you sticking around after church to start a conversation with another human, another brother or sister that you haven't met before? Are you looking for ways to know people so that you can actually do you can actually do what your heart is inclined to do if you're one of Christ's people, which is to show compassion and kindness to his kingdom citizen? You don't do it to get to heaven. But your love for other Christians is proof that the kingdom of heaven has already taken up residence in your heart and is advancing through you. This is, this is the one distinguishing mark that Jesus highlights for us that will be used as evidence in that one definitive moment of judgment, all of which leaves us with this one decision to make. There's one decision to make. Look at verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We we need to make a decision in, in light of this reality. The choice in one sense is not simply life or death, right? Like we would all choose life. That's that's our natural inclination. Of course we would we would choose life. Blaise Pascal is a famous quote. It's, it's longer than I remember, and I'm going to butcher it if I try to do it from memory. But essentially, he says this. He says, every person seeks his own happiness, even the one who hangs himself. This is, this is fundamental to human existence. What do we do? We seek our own happiness wherever we think it's going to be found. That's what we go after. So the choice is, is not so much just life or death. The choice is where do you actually believe life? Where do you actually believe joy and happiness is found? Is it found in Christ's kingdom or is it found in your own kingdom? Following him and his ways or living for yourself and your own ways? Loving other Christians is hard. Persisting in following Jesus is hard. Is this kingdom worth it? Do I believe there is life in this kingdom? Friend, this, this, this kingdom, this kingdom has 
come. The king of heaven took on flesh, came to earth, walked on this earth, and obeyed all the righteous demands of God on my behalf. And then he laid down his life and he suffered and died. They put him to death on a cross. He bore the mocking and the shame that I deserved from other people and the wrath and the anger that I deserve from God. He bore it all in his body. He suffered and died in my place. So the wrath of God is fully satisfied. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to prove that this kingdom has come and cannot be stopped. It came in the person of Jesus. And it's, it's coming. It's a kingdom that came and is coming. Since his resurrection, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he reigns on the throne in heaven right now and he is interceding for us, praying for us in this room right now that we would behold his kingdom and his glory and that we would take it with us wherever we go so that the kingdom would advance through kingdom citizens like us who proclaim the word and love each other and bear testimony to this world of a kingdom where there's love and forgiveness and acceptance and righteousness and justice and mercy mercy, and compassion. This kingdom is coming. It's coming through local churches like this one. And Jesus is highlighting for us here that this kingdom that came and is coming is a kingdom that will come finally once and for all. He will appear in glory from the clouds of heaven to clean up all of this mess and all sorrow and suffering and sickness and sin and death, all of it will be swallowed up forever at the coming of our Lord Jesus. There is life in this kingdom for everyone who turns from their sins, for you if you turn from your sins and swear allegiance to this king. If you cry out to him like our sisters told you they did, if you cry out to him, there is forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, a certain knowledge that in that one definitive moment, when Jesus appears in his glory and you stand before his throne, you'll be welcomed into eternal life. Will you come into his kingdom? Will you find life in this king. The decision you have to make is whether you believe there is life for you in this kingdom. Can I invite you just to take a moment and sit under the weight of his love who loved you, who loved you, loved you to death, even death on a cross, who suffered and died in your place so that you could know eternal life and joy. Sit, friends, sit under that love. Can I invite you for a moment to sit under the weight of his authority, the one who loved you as a king who reigns on a glorious throne and he has commanded you, the greatest commandment he has given to us is to love. To love. And I invite you to sit for a moment under the full implications of that reality that you are called to love your brothers and sisters in this local church and beyond. That the love that you have received, 
must enable and empower you to love in all the places it is difficult and hard. But to love our brothers and sisters, knowing that in loving them, we're just loving our king who loved us first. How will you live today? Seeking life in his kingdom or in your own? We need to get ready for this one definitive moment. We said at the beginning that it will be the ratification of all the choices that you have made every day of your life, that the final setting of direction, the final charting of course into eternal life or eternal punishment. Friend, what choices are you making today? Because the division, the division is certain. Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry in Matthew 4 said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the end of his first sermon in Matthew 7, he told a parable, but someone who builds a house on a rock or someone who builds a house on sand, one will be wiped away, the other will not. Jesus has told story after story, parable after parable, teaching after teaching. Time and again, he has told us that this division is coming. From the beginning of his preaching to the end, You are in or you are out. You're building on rock or you're building on sand. You are choosing life or death. You're a wheat or a tear. You're a sheep or a goat. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray.